Physics World. I'm Hamish Johnston, editor of physicsworld.com, and I've come here to Bristol University to speak to Bruce Drinkwater, professor of ultrasonics, about the physics of ultrasound. So Bruce, what exactly is ultrasound, and why are scientists interested in it? Ultrasound is a high-frequency vibrational wave, so high-frequency in that it's a Above the frequency that your ears can hear, which is around about 20 kilohertz. So any form of vibrational wave that occurs above that frequency is thought of as ultrasound. So that extends from 20 kilohertz up to megahertz. And people are interested in it for a whole wide range of reasons. Medical imaging is probably the most, most famous application of ultrasound, where all unborn babies are multiply scanned with, with ultrasound, and the ultrasonic waves can reveal incredibly fine detail about what's going on inside humans. So imaging is one of the big applications of ultrasound that's really out there and being used regularly. There are a whole load of other applications which are sort of emerging applications that our research group here is interested in. One thing that you can do in your lab is levitate objects using ultrasound. Can you explain a little bit about how you do that? Well, it's quite an unusual phenomenon, although it's been around for a number of years now. So the waves, ultrasonic waves, like a lot of waves, carry momentum with them, and so that momentum can potentially push objects around and defy gravity, or if, if the force is beyond that of, of gravity. A good analogy is thinking about water waves. In a, imagine you're a surfer. If you're surfing way out in the deep, then generally you're bobbing up and down, maybe waiting for the big wave. But when you're bobbing up and down, there's not really any momentum being imparted to you. But when the big wave comes, the breaking wave, that's uh, no longer a nice sine wave that you were originally on, it's a it's distorted wave, a nonlinear wave, that wave has an awful lot of momentum and that wave will, will, will push you into the, into the shore at high speed. So we're using the, these same sort of nonlinear waves that carry a, a lot of momentum, but trying to use them in a controllable way to levitate objects. And so the sort of scale of object that we're levitating is you know, a number of millimetres up to perhaps a centimetre in size. So medium-sized objects, say. People have levitated, and we've done it ourselves, small insects in, in these levitation devices. I'm in Bruce's lab with um, PhD student Phil Bassendale, and he's demonstrating acoustic levitation. So Bruce, what, what exactly is going on here? So as you can see, Phil's placing some uh, small polystyrene balls into the levitator device, and they're being uh, sucked in and levitated as, at a series of nodal positions, so positions where the acoustic pressure is zero. And if you look at the device here, the, the, the levitator itself, at the top there's the uh, the Langevin horn, which is a high-power uh, loudspeaker, and the hum you might hear in the background is, is a, a fairly hefty uh, audio amp, and that's the fan on that, that's, that's what, what you can hear. So that, that Langevin horn, that loudspeaker, is outputting high-amplitude acoustic waves, which are then resonating, bouncing up and down between the aluminium plates, forming a standing wave, into which Phil is very uh, delicately inserting with a pair of tweezers uh, the polystyrene balls, and he's a bit of a pro uh, at doing this, so he, make, he makes it look very easy. So what we're seeing here is a, it, it could be a pearl necklace that's hanging down, but there's no string. The, those balls are being suspended. Yes, exactly. So they, they sit on the, these, these stable node positions which occur every half wavelength. That makes this uh, pearl necklace. And if you perturb one of them, then the sound bounces off that ball, hits the next one, and so that uh, perturbation travels down the, the pearl necklace. So you can see them now, Phil's adjusting it, and you can see them wobbling a bit. Oh, he's lost. He's down to two balls now. Can he get it back up to four or five? <laughs> Here he goes. Yeah, there's, oh. a there's a couple of things that have to be just right in this experiment. One is 
the Langevin horn is a, is a resonant device, so we have to set the frequency of that accurately. Uh, the other thing that has to be just right is the distance between those two aluminium uh, reflectors. And the sound bounces up and down between those, and, and that has to be a whole number of wavelengths, pretty much spot on. So that's one of the things that has to be tuned, and, and Phil just adjusted that to get the thing to work at its best. One thing that you've done is, is you've taken this idea from one dimension into three dimensions, and you've used this phenomenon to uh, create a lattice of objects that then has very special acoustic properties. Can you uh, explain a little bit about how you did that? So starting by thinking about the levitator that, we, that we've just been talking about, that's a one-dimensional system where we have uh, a high-frequency loudspeaker, a high-frequency source of some description, and a reflector. We set up a standing wave between that source and that reflector, and we find that the objects are then uh, stably trapped at the nodes, so the points where the acoustic pressure is zero and they're repelled from the antinodes. So we get this, we, we can create a line of, of, of particles in that case. If we then set up another system that's at 90 degrees to the first one, we create an interference pattern slightly different, and if we then create a, put another one that's 90 degrees to that, we get a slight of uh, another level of complexity of. Uh, of interference pattern whereby the force field is now essentially a cubic lattice so if we then throw particles at it they sit at the at the corners of a, of a cubic lattice and then we're able to switch frequency which determines the the lattice spacing because in effect we've got a, a lattice of, of particles in this cubic lattice and we can change the lattice spacing by changing the frequency which changes the wavelength and so we can reconfigure all of this material this metamaterial very very quickly so uh, something like a tenth of a second, we can move from one state, one lattice spacing, to another lattice spacing. Uh, so with that, it was the level of reconfigurability and, and control that uh, was our particular contribution there. And these lattices have very special acoustic properties. Can you, can you explain something about that? They have uh, some frequencies that they allow ultrasound to travel through pretty much unimpeded, and then other frequencies where they reflect sound very strongly. So they they act as filters of sound, for example. Uh, it's one of the, the well-known applications of this type of material. So our ability to reconfigure these means that we can change this filter frequency very quickly in real time. And there's a whole host of other applications of this type of material. For example, uh, hyperlenses, which potentially got resolution beyond the normal diffraction limits. And if you could make a hyperlens, I know that's something you're working on at the moment. What, what sort of applications would there be? Would it be medical applications or industrial applications? So it'd be particularly good for near-surface applications. So maybe uh, detecting skin cancer really accurately, accurately mapping out skin cancer as a, as a medical application. So now, now we're looking at a, at a different setup. Um, I'm here with um, Adjizinalda Silva who's one of Bruce Drinkwater's PhD students. And we've got a microscope set up and a computer screen showing the microscope image. Now this is a much smaller application of ultrasound, Bruce. What's, what's going on here? Yes, yeah, so the, the scale is much smaller, as you say, but it, essentially it's, it's, it's a similar idea. So we're using acoustic forces to position these, these tiny little uh, polystyrene spheres. They're uh, uh, tens of microns in size and they're spaced apart by hundreds of microns. So it's a much smaller scale, and what we're trying to represent here is a system of uh, cells in a Petri dish, uh, and we're trying to uh, set up something that, will, that can carefully position the cells in this environment. And that's got a whole lot of applications, both for potentially growing uh, tissue from this starting point and for doing tests on biological uh, cells to look at 
for example, how they react to the ultrasonic force or how they react to other forces, like the forces, say, towards a, a chemical source, but we can potentially uh, control where they are with respect to that source using ultrasound. So that's, uh, yeah, a, a, it's in a way a pair of ultrasonic hands under a microscope that biologists can use to, to position and control the position of these objects, these tiny objects. And now we're going to see, I think, uh, we're going to mix up the cells and watch them come back. So we're mixing up the cells, and it's just a mess on the screen now. There's, and then, as if magic, a few seconds later, the cells are positioned in a grid as before. So the idea here to, to use this in a medical application or a biological application. Yes, so uh, one of the applications which, uh, which, which we've been exploring with a, a range of collaborators, both from Southampton, Dundee and Glasgow, has been using this as, as, a, as a way of setting up the initial condition for future growth of tissue. So our collaborators in Southampton have, have grown cartilage tissue uh, in these sort of devices and shown that in this levitated environment you can get better cartilage. And our collaborators in Glasgow have shown that uh, this seeding pattern can allow you to grow nerve cells with a particular directionality. So uh, ultimately, if you could grow nerve cells along a nice line, you could get uh, a replacement nerve generated in, in that way. So it's you know, potentially some really exciting biological applications there. And those are just two of, of many possible directions this could go in. So what other uh, ultrasound imaging techniques are you working on in the lab? So we're working on some, in a way, more traditional uh, systems where we use a, an ultrasonic array, which is a, a, a multi-element ultrasonic source, maybe with a hundred small emitters of ultrasound, each one emitting a beam of ultrasound that interacts with the structure. So we get a whole lot of information, ultrasonic reflected data, back from the structure, and we've got to then interpret it in some way. So what we're trying to do, though, is get more out of the ultrasonic data and the sort of thing is, is, is taking that data and trying to work out you know, exactly the character of the, the, the thing that's causing it to be reflected back in the first place. The particular challenge recently for you was taking your equipment out of the lab and going to Bristol's famous uh, suspension bridge. What was involved in that research? Well, yeah, it's always a challenge to take research equipment out of the lab and into the field. And the suspension bridge, albeit it's local in Bristol, so it's only a mile down the road, but it's got its challenges, so we had to take quite heavy equipment up these towers, right to the very top of the, the towers, up some small ladders, which was quite physically demanding and quite cold because we did it in February when we got up there and the wind's whistling, whistling by, and after an hour of doing that, you can't feel your fingers anymore. So that's something we didn't include in the model, but it was something that we experienced when we were there. But when you actually get to the top, there's this of, of the tower. What we were actually looking at was there's this lump of metal called a saddle and the suspension chain, which is actually a series of plates, comes in from land up to this saddle, where it's bolted into this saddle with some pins through the plates, and then the other side of the saddle is the suspension cable that, from which the deck is hung. And the hypothesis that the stress analysis people had, had come up with was that where these bolts take the chain into the saddle was the place where the stresses were highest, and with day-night and annual temperature fluctuations, the chain moves with respect to the saddle, and so there could be uh, a mechanism for crack propagation. You'd be pleased to hear we didn't find any cracks, uh, but uh, the challenge was, could we inspect this? Could, and, and no standard techniques were able to do this, so we had to use one of our research techniques to focus this uh, ultrasonic energy deep within, so 30 centimetres within, within, within this metallic structure, and the metal being old, 
has a whole lot of impurities in there that wouldn't be present in modern materials, and those impurities themselves reflect ultrasound. So it's quite a challenge, not quite a needle in a haystack, but we're trying to find a crack-like strong reflector in amongst a whole lot of weak reflectors. And as I said a moment ago, we didn't find any, which was good news, and we were able to prove on some test samples that had there been a significant crack there, we would have seen it. Thanks to Bruce Drinkwater and his colleagues at Bristol University for some fascinating demonstrations of ultrasound technology. If you'd like to see a video of the levitation experiment, it's on physicsworld.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Physics World.